0: Episode 1386 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and I am joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. This is going to be a fun one. We talked later in this episode to Eric Monkenhagen and Kylie McDaniel of Fangraphs. I said we talked later in this episode, which weird tenses. We have talked to them, but it will be later in this episode for you we talked to them about the draft and we broke it down on a player level, on a team level, but also on a more macro level. We talked about draft trends and how players are being developed and how players are being picked. So even for someone like me who is not as into the nitty gritty of individual players, because there's so many and I can't keep track of all of them, I'm interested in the strategy and some of the larger trends. And we got into all of that. And I told you, I thought I only had a few questions and then it turned out I had many questions and so did you. So hopefully we will answer other questions questions people have but we've got to talk a little bit about actual baseball news craig kimbrell is no longer a free agent dallas keichel still is as we speak although perhaps not as you listen but it seems unnatural to be talking about a prominent free agent signing in june but that's where we are craig kimbrell is now a chicago cub he signed for three years and 45 million He's going to be 10 this year and 16 in each of the next two years. And then there's a, a buyout at the end of it. So there's a lot that we could say about this. You have to edit some pieces for fancraft So we may not <laughs> say all that we could say, but... Ken Rosenthal just wrote about how this happened, and he said why this took until the first week of June could fill a business textbook. And I think that's true because there are so many considerations here from the team side, from the league-wide side, just the way baseball's economics are working right now, the way players and agents are approaching free agency right now. So... We can talk a little bit about that and just about what Kimbrel means to the Cubs. What's your main takeaway? I mean, it's it's nice that one of the best players at the thing that he does is now going to be playing baseball again, but yeah. it's not something where you can just leave it at that and, hey, Kimbrel's good and he gets to play and he makes the Cubs better because there are all these other factors that play into these extremely belated signings.
1: Yeah, I so uh, Craig Edwards wrote about about the Kimbrel signing for us at at FanGraphs, and you know, noted that. There are a number of bullpens that are underperforming right now, or at least are performing poorly on teams that are trying to contend. So we can even set aside the, the very bad bullpens on teams that are really far out of contention and didn't really have any, any intention of contending. That's weird to say. <laughs> it's hard to say. And I think Craig noted something that I think is useful here, which is that there is a scenario under which teams being trepidatious about signing Kimbrell in particular and relievers more generally is a reasonable Uh, It's a reasonable thing, right? It's the part of the roster that's the hardest to predict. There's a ton of variation year to year. Um, That was
0: sabermetric dogma a few years ago. Don't spend on closers. Don't
1: spend on closers, right? Because they will often be less good than they were. I mean, like the Mets are a team that invested uh, not, not money but prospect value in getting Edwin Diaz and he has been fine but not amazing, right? And then they went out and spent... $30 $30 million, Jairus Familia, who has not pitched well. So there is, you know, even teams that deploy some resources, whether they're prospects or, or dollars, can end up uh, disappointed. But we do see teams spend money on relievers. That is a part of the market. And so for him to sit out for so long when he is such a talented pitcher, even if he is 30, even if he has been very good instead of great of late, even if he did struggle in October, uh, makes you think that this isn't really about roster construction or doing what is exactly right for the team, but it is you know, being influenced, as you noted, by a ton of other considerations. I don't know how You know, we will never know the full extent of uh, Kimbrel's true demands of teams um, prior to now. And we will never know the exact uh, sort of set of motivations that um, facilitated this, you know, waiting until June. But when you think about, you know, the Cubs in particular their bullpen was was very, very poor and they waited to spend this money on a guy who when you think about the value of the pick that they would have been giving up and some of the international money essentially equates to Daniel Descalso. Well mm-hmm. isn't isn't it worth it to the Cubs to spend a Daniel Descalso to not have the bullpen they've had? Right. So I just I think that, you know, they might end up sort of Getting away with one, they're competitive in a division that is tight, but they are, you know, sort of holding their own. They're leading that division, albeit narrowly. Um, the Brewers were another team that didn't end up getting Kimbrel, right? And the Kim- mm-hmm. and the Cardinals didn't get Kimbrel either. But it is sort of disappointing that, you know, the thing that we might come away when we look back on the season, we might be like, well, they righted the ship at the right time, and so it ended up being fine, and maybe they spent a little less than they would have ultimately. And I think that that's probably. The wrong uh, message for us to, to take from this because, you know, they could presumably be doing even better in the central than they are now. They could have more cushion between themselves and the brewers. They could have a clearer sense of their competitive sort of picture going forward if they had pulled the trigger a little early. So I don't... I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the Cubs bullpen has been shaky, and Brandon Morrow, who was the closer for part of last year, he's coming back from elbow surgery. Pedro Strop was just activated, but has been on and off injured lists, and so you slot Kimbrel in there, and in theory, at least, you should have a, a pretty good back of the bullpen there with Kimbrel right. and Strop and Sechek and Brad Brock and Brandon Kinsler. So you could imagine that really coming together into a f- pretty formidable unit. Part of the reason that Kimbrell has been sitting out all this time is that Kimbrell seems potentially past his peak. He's right. he's dipped below and climbed back up again. So it's hard to say from year to year with relievers. But of course, he was somewhat walk-prone last year and never more than in the playoffs, which was the last time that people saw him. And he didn't really lose games for the Red Sox, but right. he tried his best to. <laughs> and he, he gave up a whole lot of base runners and Did not look like someone you would want to commit a lot of money to. So, that may have been part of this. Perhaps part of it was him misreading the demand for him or hoping that there would be more demand. You know, there were reports that he was seeking some giant six-year deal or a $100 at some point in the offseason. I don't know whether that's accurate. I know that Ken Rosenthal, I think, reported back in April that he was seeking, at that time, a contract that is pretty close to the one he just signed. So it does seem like his demands came down, and yet he was still sitting out, and it is probably not a coincidence that he signed immediately after the amateur draft which yeah. means that teams do not have to give up draft picks to sign him anymore the draft pick compensation goes away after the draft so that is probably part of it but i mean if you look at like craig edwards draft pick values that he did early this year like once you get down below the very top picks that should not really be something that stops you from making a move like right I think the what like the Dodgers would have had to give up their thirty-first pick or something and according to Craig, that's worth almost ten million dollars. Like that's something. Yeah. But once you get down, you know, he went all the way down to pick 70 and down there it's like 3.8 million is the value in terms of, you know, future surplus production and various teams were in that range, and that shouldn't really be prohibitive if you think that Craig Kimbrell's gonna make you better. So it's hard to say how much of it was Kimbrell's demands, how much of it was teams not spending when they should have. I, I think we know that the Cubs all offseason – Protested that they couldn't make any moves, that they were maxed out in payroll. And, you know, it's always kind of hard to believe that when you're talking about a team like the Cubs that has been very successful and has a nice media market and attendance and is a very valuable franchise. And maybe that's a constraint that the front office is working under, but ownership has imposed for ownership's own reasons. And so I think you could look at this and say, why didn't they do it three months ago? But then. You could also look at other teams that didn't do it now and could have and would have benefited from it, like the Brewers, for instance. And, and the Brewers aren't the Cubs and they've spent some and, and they're in a different position. But you look at teams like the Brewers or the Braves or the Twins and various teams that really seem like they could use Kimbrell, whether for the pennant race or for the playoffs. And ultimately he went to the Cubs and I guess good for them. Although who knows exactly how long it will take. It seems like it might take a couple of weeks for Kimbrel to debut. And then you don't know whether there will be some hangover effect, whether it'll take him some time to get up to speed. So there's some uncertainty there too.
1: Yeah. I've, I've wanted to find the right way to To formulate this question without making it sound like I don't think that a team should sign him because that isn't my intention with the question, and so I haven't come up with a great way to do it, so I haven't because it made me nervous on Twitter, but I I have been thinking a lot lately about just exactly how long it's going to take him to get sort of ramped up. I mean, he is a reliever, so theoretically it's less difficult than say whatever program Dallas Keuchel is going to need to work his way through in order to be sort of top, you know, top shape for whatever team he ends up signing with, which sounds like might result in him having to shave. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I do wonder, you know, the the studies on this stuff seem to be kind of inconclusive with how much those long layoffs tend to affect guys, you know, so I, I, I wonder about that. And if you, we just have to we just have to hope he pitches really well because mm-hmm. if he's bad twitter is going to be unbearable <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be gnarly because we've all spent the last couple of months rightly saying, well, while there are some bad bullpens and while there's this good reliever out there and you can get him for just money, all it takes is money. It doesn't even take prospects. So someone should go do that. So I hope that for all of our sakes, uh, most especially for Craig Kimbrels, but um, as a secondary knock on effect for our own sanities that he's just like lights out. And then they can be bashful and feel silly uh, and we can feel relieved.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is sort of a pattern with the Cubs picking up closers and prioritizing closers. It's Erildis Chapman. It's Wade Davis. It's now Craig Kimbrell. And the other kind of unseemly aspect to this story is that if you read Ken Rosenthal's report, no one with the Cubs will come out and say this, yeah. but they are <laughs> dropping hints. And, you know, it's a connection that I think a lot of people are drawing that Ben Zobrist is currently on the restricted list while he's dealing with a divorce and maybe out for the rest of the season. And he's not being paid while he's on that leave. And therefore, the Cubs are recouping that cost, and yeah. maybe have decided that they will put that money that they are saving because of a difficult time in Ben Zobra's life toward Craig Kimbrel, which is you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of gross to think about that, uh, that this move may have come about because of a misfortune that has befallen one of their players. but:
1: Yeah, <sighs> I think my mom would call it tacky. Yeah. She would say that was tacky, and I think <laughs> that that characterization would be accurate. It does, I mean, the numbers do line up in a kind of uncomfortable way, um, so I think it, it will be hard to to avoid that assumption that people are going to make. But right. I hope that that's not, I, I think that the still silly but less Tacky explanation is the draft pick compensation, rather than mm-hmm. than this money suddenly freeing up in the budget because of Zobris, um personal misfortune. So, yeah, why don't we go with that? We'll just <laughs> right. we'll just pretend that's true instead, because yeah. otherwise it's kind of yucky.
0: <laughs> so maybe this is the kind of contract in this whole off season saga that we'll look back on after the next CBA, perhaps, and say. These are the kinds of situations that changes in this round of bargaining were designed to address. We'll see whether the players actually succeed in that respect, but getting this draft pick compensation removed or getting players paid early in their career if free agents aren't going to make as much as they once would have. I mean, I think that this contract – sort of sounds like a lot if you're still in the mentality of don't pay for saves but there are comparable contracts for comparable or even lesser pitchers that have been signed for the same amount or even more in not a distant time so it's not like out of nowhere and I think there is still the perception that you can just kind of go find bullpen guys and you can convert a starter or you can just develop someone who has a good arm and suddenly he's a good late inning guy and that's true that happens but there are a whole lot of teams that still need bullpen help because bullpens are shouldering a a heavier load bullpens are pitching a lot and the individual pitchers in those bullpens are not pitching as much you don't see guys pitching three or four days in a row anymore and mostly don't go multiple innings so you need to fill those innings with arms and and some teams that have spent recently, this past winter, on free agent relievers are satisfied with the players they've brought on, Adam Adovino or Zach Britton. But right. as Craig pointed out in his piece, you've got Andrew Miller and you've got David Robertson and you've got Juris Familia and you've got Joe Kelly. And there's a, a long list of guys who kind of justify the old attitude about don't trust relievers, don't invest in relievers because they will break your hearts. So. We'll see which which box Craig Kimbrel fits into.
1: Yeah, yeah. Man, Joe Kelly's having a bad year.
0: Yes, yes, yeah.
1: But, but as Jay has recently written for Fangraphs, uh, it hasn't mattered. The Dodgers are amazing. It right, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's <sighs> the
0: thing. Yeah, I mean, I I could have lumped in the Red Sox uh, with when I was listing teams that could have potentially used Craig Kimbrel, yeah. but uh...
1: turns out that Ryan Brazier, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, wasn't the solution that they thought he would be.
0: No, Mm. not really. Yeah, the bullpen as a whole has not been terrible, but they're... Yeah, there's some teams that don't have that like designated stopper at the back and there are fewer teams that are making it a priority to have that guy like saves are being distributed more widely across the bullpen and I think teams are playing matchups and they're looking at usage and it's not so much like you need to have the fire-breathing ninth inning guy who gets all the save opportunities that's not really the case anymore but I think every team would benefit from having Craig Kimbrel. <laughs> so there are a lot of teams out there there that fans will be questioning why it's not their team opening up a, a brand new Craig Kimbrell today.
1: Yeah. Brand new. Brand new at thirty.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Would that
1: we were all brand new at thirty. <laughs> yeah. Who
0: knows? Maybe the time off will do him some good. Yeah, some could way. be true. In the long run at least. Yeah. But uh yeah, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on him, I think, to like justify the buildup, which is not yeah. his fault. But it's like we've been waiting for Craig Kimbrell for months, and it's like, has Craig Kimbrell been asking for too much? And if he shows up now and looks rusty or non-dominant, then, as you were saying, everyone will think, oh, well, teams were right not to right. sign Craig Kimbrell, but... This is a different situation from if they had signed him in December, let's say, probably.
1: Well, I'll just agree. Well, all of us who are writers about baseball will agree to if he struggles, which will be a thing that we have to write about. We mm-hmm. will agree to note the oddity of the situation and the part of it that is definitely not his fault. And we'll just all agree. And hopefully we can set a tone uh, with that discourse that uh, acknowledges a struggle should there be one, but uh, does not. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> right. Okay so I think we've We've covered the Craig Kimbrell situation as well As we can in 15 minutes or so You could write a business textbook about it But we we don't have time to do that right now Business textbooks you've probably read a few In your day probably not really entertaining Reads (laughs) I
1: I actually managed To dodge the whole thing because the funny Thing about finance is they just teach you what You need to know when you show up it's Uh
0: wild (laughs) Okay (laughs) All right. so we Can take a quick break maybe next Time we'll have a Dallas Keuchel contract talk about we'll see but uh we'll be back in just a moment with eric and kylie to talk all about the draft and development and prospects so sit back relax maybe browse to an online retailer and purchase a newly released baseball book called the mvp machine how baseball's new non-conformists are building better players and by the time you complete that purchase we'll be back oh, we Okay, so the draft is done, and I don't personally know exactly what happened, and that is why we are doing this segment with multiple people who know exactly what happened. They are Kylie McDaniel and Eric Langenhagen of Fangraphs, and they have already reviewed the first round of the draft team-by-team team for Fangraphs in written form. They've gone through the draft in podcast form on The Ump Show on the Fangraphs audio feed as well. But today, they're joining us to bring some draft knowledge, and I hope that they've gotten some sleep in the last 12 hours or so, possibly. Kylie, hello, welcome.
2: Hello, thank you for having me. I also have gotten some sleep in like the last, you know the the one last sleep that i had it has been okay but before that it was a little shaky excellent and eric how's your alertness level it is suboptimal
3: ben <laughs> but okay. but i did the i did the melatonin thing last night so i crashed pretty hard so that was good does that work that there's scientific backing for that right i've never tried it it's
0: my problem is not falling asleep it's like deciding to go to sleep so i don't know whether melatonin would be <laughs> mm. Productive for me or counterproductive
3: there are some studies that show it's more or less placebo like you can't do it every day uh-huh it is a thing i do like after a flight
0: <laughs>
2: okay you know ben i imagine you sleep uh, suspended from the ceiling upside down am i wrong there
1: <laughs> i imagine you don't sleep at all
2: <laughs> well that's why i assumed it was weird if you did
0: sleep <laughs> when i do sleep it's often during the day so i have both a, a face mask that I wear and have recommended on the podcast in the past and then I also have like curtains around my bed so that I can slumber during the daytime in vampiric fashion and uh, it's pretty dark in there. All right, so my bat reference wasn't that far off. No, not at all. Not at all. Partly it's because I I always just, uh, I like an old timey bed that has the, you know, curtains and the four poster and everything just stylistically. But also it's a practical matter Anyway, this is not something that applies to most people's lives Great (laughs) draft talk right now, I think (laughs) Yeah, the draft So how did your mock go? How did it hold up? Was this generally a predictable draft Or an unpredictable draft relative to the typical
2: draft Which is always unpredictable I guess, Kylie, you can start So I think every expert got the first seven picks right And some of them got the top eight picks right Which I don't think normally happens Mm. And my suspicion uh, Having been on the other side of this before is that the consensus around what the top six or seven picks would be, which I think there were multiple mocks that had this correct like a month out. I think the reason we heard a lot of, oh, they might be going under slot with this guy that's sort of not been considered that pick for a while is because the mocks were too accurate up top. And if they're too accurate too long in advance agents know that my player will go here teams are boxed into we know you want that player and so prices go up and so Mm. like we know Michael Elias used to be with Houston they would always you know throw out a way below option they would always not communicate with the agent they would do whatever they can to create some leverage where it may not have existed and now I think with the sort of coverage of the draft getting a little more sophisticated I think now teams and agents and mock people and people that tell us rumors have all sort of figured out that if we are a little too zeroed in, a little too early. We're going to hear some real wacky stuff at the end, which in the last 48 hours, we heard some real wacky stuff.
0: So you two determined the draft order is essentially what you're <laughs> no. saying. The baseball That's world definitely what I'm saying. Yeah. is reading your mock draft and reacting to it. Some <laughs> of it
3: has to, to just be random to a degree, right? Like the fact that there is such clear demarcation between these top six or seven guys and the rest of the middle of the first round basically is just like, this is just how it played out. Right. And some of it, is that they fit with teams, you know, like Andrew Vaughn is to a T what, like, the White Sox have drafted the last three drafts. CJ Abrams is like a quintessential Padres type of prospect. So, like, there are just some good fits here, too, that I think cause things to be very stable up top, like, from a mock draft perspective.
2: And I would also say it's easier to find your universal appeal on players being in a tier and whatnot when there's no high school pitchers up there. And this year there weren't. So there wasn't going to be the this team loves that guy. This team, you know, whacked him, took him off the board because of the arm action or something.
0: Yeah, so speaking of those top six picks, they were all position players. And I think only 10 of the 32 picks in the first round were pitchers. And Sam and I were talking about this yesterday from a completely uninformed perspective about whether this is a trend, whether this means something about teams devaluing pitchers at the top of the draft, or whether it is just a weakness of this draft in particular, or a one-year blip
3: or whatever. So Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? The college pitching group is was bad this year. And we did not have, like, last year we had three high school pitchers at the top of the draft. And there just wasn't that tier of pitcher in this year's draft. Uh, so it was just a down year on the high end for pitching talent, especially on the high school side and just overall for college. So I do think it was more or less, I think it was just more one uh, year of, like, randomness as far as the talent pool is concerned. But I think you're correct that teams are generally devaluing pitching.
2: Mm-hmm. I would also throw in that uh, I want to say in like August, September of last year, we only had one pitcher in like the top 17 or 18. So we knew pretty far out that the college pitching was weak. I think what happened uh, with two in the top 15 was actually stronger than the early projections would have. And we have an article that will actually be going to Meg to edit right after we finish recording this. Uh, that, that points <laughs> out that uh, of our 2020 list, uh, six of the top 11 are college pitchers. So I think it is much more of a blip than like. You know, if if there's a bunch of ace possible level starters, like they will go toward the top. There just weren't any this year, and next year there might be some.
3: Do you think like we tend to trend toward attrition of the, the like the pitching pool during the spring? Guys get hurt or don't perform more often than they pop up, it seems like. It's just like totally anecdotally, but in most years, like especially the Duke like Duke pitching, Mike Matuela and Graham Stinson this year.
2: And Adam Lasky this year too.
3: Right. Yeah. Like there's just more regression. Like, so I, you know, look at next year's, like our 2020 ranking right now with like fear, you know, like which of these guys is not going to be here next year because there will be one or two or three of them.
2: Yeah. I can almost guarantee one of them will blow up between the next 12 months.
1: So I'm not going to, these next couple of questions are not inviting in any way a draft grade because those are dopey and we're not interested in being dopey even if we are tired but obviously this this stretch was particularly important for the diamondbacks so we're going to start micro and then go go macro a little bit and I'm wondering from your guys' perspective, did they end up taking uh, the approach that you expected them to in terms of who they selected? Was that – what was that approach going in that you were kind of anticipating from them because we saw them seemingly at every game uh, at the amateur level this year? Uh, and then just in general, how do you think they ended up doing on the day or days?
3: I thought we expected them to do you know, a mix of high schoolers and college players, specifically college pitching. That is where a lot of D-backs brass have been seen. Some of that is like me being at ASU and seeing D-backs personnel like constantly because it's right there. The whole Pac-12 came through. Uh, They ended up taking one Pac-12 pitcher in Ryan Nelson, the Oregon reliever, who's like maybe if we had to pick a, a guy who might be quickest to the big leagues, if he were just thrown in the bullpen, it might be Ryan Nelson. And, you know, I think at 16, they just got good value with Corbin Carroll. I don't think they were boxed into any one particular player demographic. I think they were just going to take a a value prospect who fell, uh, which all the teams really from 16 to 19 were able to do. And then uh, they took high school talent and, and like one of the better college pitchers in Dre Jamison in that comp round at pick 33, at pick 26, pick 34, two prep arms and, and, uh, their first of several college pitchers. Um, so it just seems like they, I don't know, they probably had the high school arms higher on the board, right? Like this is sort of what we anticipated, Kylie. I don't the, – the high school pitcher spillover uh, like into the early 40s this year was – I don't know. There, there's typically the early second round is when those teams can get another like $3 million – High school pitching prospect, and I think the quality in that area was down this year. Like this area is where the, our top tier of high school pitchers was, like the, the, the comp round.
2: Yeah, I would say the anticipation we had is that with those top four picks in the top 34, so 16, 26, 33, 34, we figured three of those four picks, they'd take a high school player because they have more money than everyone else. And you can sort of move high school players around much more easily than college players because of the leverage with college commitment. Sure. Three of those four picks were high school players that are, I'd say, generally the higher ceiling type and then they took sort of to do what most teams do what they call a portfolio approach where you get like hitter pitcher high school college they then followed that with a bunch of college pitchers and then a couple of college hitters and and just sort of got a little bit of you know each demographic which i think we expected as they you know, throw throw their weight around early, get the high school players they wanted, and then kind of played a little straight from there on and kind of mix in different demographics, which is, I'd say, pretty close to what they did, at least in vague terms.
1: Were there other teams in this draft where, you know, they took picks in the first round where you find yourselves either higher or lower uh, than industry consensus on sort of the quality of those players or the value that they were getting at those picks?
3: Yeah, I guess... um... Braden Shoemake, the Braves pick at 21. We were on the low end, it seemed, compared to where a lot of teams were. Like, we had Shoemake at about 50. Most teams had him, like, 30 to 40, and the Braves took him 21. It's not, like, an indefensible pick or anything like that. It is, it's just we see him as more of, like, if this is going to be a regular, there will probably have to be a swing change. He performed for three years of college, but, like, basically peaked as a freshman. So, you know, we think he's more of a utility type. But at the back of the first round, that's to be reasonably expected. Like, that's a, a pretty good outcome for a late first rounder. So that was one where there was a, a sizable gap early on. Uh, and then I think we only had one hitter in the 40s, a college hitter, like with a, in the 40 future value tier who wasn't drafted uh, in Arizona catcher Matt Dyer. And so that would be like the flip side of it, someone who we liked as a prospect who just wasn't selected.
1: And then, I guess, were there sort of, if we take it out to the team level, were there teams that just had days that you were particularly impressed with? I know that you guys were fans of the Arizona draft generally, but were there other ones where you're like, hey, that was a nice little day there. Everyone should have a
3: coffee. Uh, Philly? Philly didn't have a, a whole lot of early picks. They picked at 14, and then they didn't pick again until 91, and I still thought that their day two, like, they had an excellent draft. So they, they got Eric Miller, a lefty from Stanford at pick 120. Stuff was down throughout the spring. Like, it was mid-90s last summer and early in the year, and then what, it was 88-92 down the stretch. But was still pitching well. Like, the secondary stuff is really good. He can really pitch. Uh, I think he's a candidate for, like, bounce back, velo bounce back, uh, especially if they shut him down. Like this is what's happened with a lot of college arms lately is they get picked, they get shut down for the the rest of the summer, and then they come back next year throwing harder or at least like return to wherever their peak had been. So I like Eric Miller at 120. They got a couple interesting high schoolers as well. Uh, and Andrew Schultz, a reliever at Tennessee, who throws really hard. Like I just thought for for what the Phillies had as far as picks go, uh, that, they, that they did quite well.
2: Uh, And I would point out the Mets. We really liked uh, the first pick, Brett Beatty, who the rumors are that he's like well below slot, uh, like maybe five or six hundred K under slot, which we had him ranked four spots ahead where they got him. So that'd be great if they could pull that off. Uh, Josh Wolf in the second round is like a you know perfectly fine. We basically had him ranked where they took him. And then obviously in the third round, like uh, one of the buzzer picks of the draft taking uh, Matt Allen there. And we actually might have been the low guys on Matt Allen because we had him at 20 and I think. Most of the other rankings had them like 13 to 15. Uh, we're We're a little wary that when the stuff really ticked up, the command wasn't there. But in general, getting as many of those top tier players as you can is a pretty good strategy. And then because they did that, they were able to hit the sort of priority seniors In rounds four through 10. And so they got sort of first pick at those guys. And it sounds like, you know, you can get a very good senior who might make a 40 man or a big league roster for 20 K and get a guy that you don't really expect to do very much for 5 K. And if you get to those seniors early for just a little bit extra money, you can get some of the good ones. And they got three of the, I don't know, 15 or 20 we had on the board right afterwards. Whereas if they would have played it straight and just mixed in some seniors in the ninth and tenth, they probably wouldn't have gotten those guys. And that probably doesn't matter, but like it's a nice sort of added benefit of spending all your money in the first three picks.
3: And then I'll add Boston to the mix. Matthew Lugo, we had ranked 26th, and it sounded like teams in, it thought he was going to go in the comp round. And some of the teams in like the the teens were running into Puerto Rico to see him late. Uh, we thought he had a chance to go like in the middle of the first round, and the Red Sox got him in round two. Uh, Cameron Cannon, who we mocked them to at pick 43, uh, they ended up taking. And then like at pick 49, they took Noah Song, who I thought was like a late first round talent, but There's uncertainty surrounding his naval commitment.
1: Have we heard anything more about that in the last couple of days?
3: No, not that. No, I don't know if the Red Sox took him with any knowledge of what might occur or with anticipation of what might occur. But just, you know, what you should expect to get at pick 50 and what Noah Song might be, especially if he's able to head to your camp and be a professional baseball player relatively soon, like – I thought it was a a big swing at pick 49. That when you don't have a whole lot else going on in, the, in your draft, like the Rocky, the the Red Sox just don't have a, they didn't have a whole lot of picks up high. Uh, like it's worth it to take this risk, even if you know the worst case scenario is this guy doesn't get to put on a, a Sox affiliate uniform until he's 24, and at that point he has like very little chance of making it. But if they can get him in sooner, then he was undervalued. So I thought that was an interesting pick.
1: Maybe that explains the White House visit. They had to go sort out the Noah Song situation. (laughs) Finally an answer. Ben, you should ask a question now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So zooming out a little, we talked a little bit about the fact that there were more batters taken before the first pitcher than any draft before, which might be indicative of a trend or might just be this year's class. What other long-term or short-term trends just on a macro level are you observing, if any? Like, what's what's the hot tactic in the draft these days? How are we weighing college versus high school or certain positions versus other positions? Like... We were to compare the draft as a whole or early in the draft today to the draft 10 years ago or 20 years ago,
2: what would be the things that stand out? So the one big thing this year is once you got past that first tier of high school bats, should be Bobby Wood Jr., CJ Abrams, Brett Beatty, and Corbin Carroll. That's where the consensus started to diverge. And the, I mean, we still remember the Rani ages early studies from what was it like seven or eight years ago now about how high school uh, hitter age really matters. Right. The hitters for high school, which I have done further research on this, that high school hitter specifically in the top couple rounds is where age matters the most. And teams are clearly making decisions based on this, that we got Keone Cavaco went 13th, which I think we had uh a little bit lower than that we had we had him ranked 22nd so we thought that was like a little bit of a reach um matthew lugo who went in the second round was 18.1 kavako 18.0 draft average is like 18.2 or three so anything below that is considered you know advantageous in that uh regard blake wallston a pitcher was 17.9 brooks lee did not sign but he was 18.3 had some buzz in the first round sounds like a medical thing may have pushed him to school spencer jones also went to school was young anthony volpe 18.1 kyron paris 17.6 in the second round Gunnar Henderson, 17.9 in the second round. Uh, there were a lot of high school hitters that basically made up that second tier that were all basically on the young side. And even so the ones that went to school that were in, in consideration there were also on the young side. And not all of them were in that group. And they sort of, I guess the idea behind the sort of age research is basically that these guys are facing guys older than them. And so it's harder for them to stand out. And also they sort of physically develop a little bit later. And so you would think during the spring is mostly when these guys would emerge. And that's basically what happened. But then also weird for multiple teams like oh we thought you know will wilson who age also matters a little bit for college hitters as well he's one of the younger uh, college hitters and they're like oh he threw him in the model and he came out better than we thought he would and then all of a sudden these guys just sort of you slowly hear them kind of moving up 10 15 spots or if they're you know in the second round maybe 20 spots once these models get to sort of weigh in and tell the scouts like oh you had him here you should adjust him here based on this demographics like success or failure in the past
3: i guess um on the pitching side that it's clear it's spreading like teams care about Things like approach angle and spin axis, Uh, they're just more pitchers with vertical arm slots moving up boards. You look at, like, um, Ethan Small, who was taken in the back of the first round by Milwaukee. Uh, That's another lefty who has that, like, Clayton Kershaw-style delivery where he only throws 88-91 but gets a lot of vertical action on his breaking ball. And so he carved up SEC hitters for three years while sitting 88-91. And they're just this type of pitcher whose stuff works this way is becoming more pervasive throughout the draft and just just moving up boards in general. Like teams are starting to suss out uh, what about pitching makes it effective. Uh, this seems to be one of the things that's you know like correlated with Swinging strikes is are pitches that move in these directions, and so there are just more guys like that going. A lot of the sidearm guys or three like traditional three quarters types are moving down. Sinker ballers, except for the Rockies, which is kind of interesting that like they're one of the only teams for whom it's advantageous now, and I wonder if they have like an outsized advantage because fewer and fewer teams are targeting sinker ballers. Hmm. But uh, but yeah, there's there's a certain type of pitcher that now seems more desirable.
0: So do you think there's more or less consensus across the league? I mean, do draft boards, internal draft boards look more similar to each other or less than they did when everyone was kind of going by naked eye and gut feel and makeup as opposed to now where they're going by technology, but certain teams are integrating that a bit more into their process than others?
2: I think they look more similar now because back in the day, you could just have a scouting director and then a national cross tracker that didn't like a prospect, yeah. and that opinion would sort of spread throughout the organization, and the whole team would be off the player, and there'd really no be there wouldn't be a reason why it's basically two people's opinions made the team out, where which is you know sort of random. Those guys are spread throughout the league. That if you know eighty percent of them like a player, twenty percent don't, some team's gonna have two or three guys in a row at the top that don't like them. So it was sort of random and hard to tell which teams were in or out on a player on type. And now that models are all sort of, you know, they're using the same information. I think people analyze the information differently, but stuff like young high school hitters should be moved up. Like everyone knows this, including people on the internet. And we can look at teams track records and see that they're valuing this. And so like some models, like I've been told are more than 50% scouting reports and they just want to have all this demographic data to sort of round up or round down on the scouting reports and like, you know, have some track man stuff round up or round down on the pitchers. But use scouting reports and other ones, it sounds like they just sort of slavishly do whatever the model tells them to, which obviously means they're going to take like, you know, the guys that fall right into the meaty part of the curve of the, you know, the young hitter or the trackman friendly pitcher or um, the guy with performance or the guy that was famous over the summer is ranked in all the public rankings or, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, And so, because I think, uh, I don't know, it sounds like if not 30, at least 25 teams have a model and I would say 10 to 15 teams really pay attention to the model in one way or another that they're going to all be on similar sorts of players, especially if they like check three or four boxes. Whereas the guys that check like one box, any one model could disagree with another. But the ones that sort of check all the boxes, but maybe aren't a scouting type, those guys are going to be rated almost the same by everybody.
3: I think that boards look very different for orgs who are and are not confident in their player development. I think that the more measurable stuff, you know, peak exit velos, uh, things that... Like Cameron Meissner, the the Marlins, one of their early picks is a guy with, like, huge tools who needs... He's a college back who needs a lot of work. That is a team who... Or that is a player who... Teams like the Yankees and, you know, the Marlins have Yankees player dev staff. That's... Those are the teams that were on that guy. Like, they knew they could fix that guy. Or they are confident that they could. And so I think that the teams who are better at the, at the player dev stuff, I think the way they look at the draft varies compared to those who are still a little bit behind.
1: Were there any drafts where, you know, we've seen in recent years systems that are defined by a particular approach where we have sort of, there's a lack of uh, variety in the ecosystem, right? The Astros have these guys with a lot of spin and big curveballs. The Dodgers have hitters with big power and some strikeout issues. Were there any drafts where you saw sort of related to, to what you just said, a player type emerging that might be of interest to them or is there too much variation for us to really draw any kind of conclusion like that?
3: Cleveland consistently drafts like some of the youngest prospects in the draft. We've gotten like a bunch of Cleveland mock draft picks correct the last couple of years just because we're like, okay, who's the youngest guy on the board who's around this range on talent and like we just put him there with Cleveland and it's been correct. I think they ended up with three or four 17-year-old players. They took, a, in the third round, you know, like very polished, undersized high school bat, like a 6-foot, 180-pound first baseman from SoCal, like projectionless, just squat little high school kid who just mashed against pretty good Southern California pitching all spring. Like he wasn't on any of his showcase stuff last year. He's totally a spring-like pop-up guy, if you like him, but everyone thought he was going to go to school. Like, this is typical Cleveland, polished high school hitters who are also young. Uh, and then they also do the famous high school pitcher. I, Kylie and I believe that, like, the Cleveland's Cleveland's model stretches over two years. Uh, they end up with a lot of sophomore performers who were down, had j- down junior years uh, or high school pitchers whose stuff was much better the summer before and was down a little bit that spring. Uh, and that was Daniel Espino, their their first round pick this year. He was like 95-99 last summer. It was more 92-95 this spring. Two drafts ago, it was Ethan Hankins, whose stuff was much better the summer before. You know, they ended up with Brady Aiken at one point. So Cleveland is, is the one that's easiest to sort of no scope in like the mock, in my opinion.
1: Kylie, this one is for you. You wrote as part of our draft week coverage about swing changers, noting that you had You guys had seen sort of a trend or a rumor emerging pre-draft about uh, prep arms who might be inclined to go to professional organizations for their dev instead of relying on colleges, which are somewhat behind uh, on the hitting side compared to the pitching side. And I'm wondering if there were any uh, dudes who struck you as sort of fitting that trend in in this year's draft. Did we see it like you thought you would?
2: Uh, I, as you started that question, I, I sort of panicked because I was like, oh yeah, I wrote an article about look for this in the draft and now the draft is over and I never look to see. Uh, so while your question was going, I was scrolling through the fourth round because that's kind of the beginning of this range. Sure. And I, I think I noticed six high school hitters that signed. Uh, or, or expected to sign. In that well, range. isn't that
1: nice? Yeah, <laughs>
2: like it, at least it wasn't way lower than I would have thought. <laughs> that would have been bad. And I definitely after I wrote that article got uh, contacted by people, you know, sort of around the, the scouting world and various parts of it saying like, oh yeah, I kind of noticed this. I wasn't sure if it was just my area or just my region or just our team's board or whatever. So it seems like other people are seeing this too. And as I'm continuing to scroll through in the sixth round, it looks like there's a couple more of them. So yeah, I would say it at least held serve uh, in in terms of the the number that had been in the past, it looks like there may be a few extra, but I think that dynamic definitely exists because obviously there could be four or five people that just chose not to go to school because sure. the money ran out, and so that I wouldn't I wouldn't let the results define if that's happening because it sounds like it's definitely happening, and it will affect high school hitters' decisions, and it may eventually defect affect high school uh, pitchers' decisions. Although one of the things we talked about with Arizona about the. You know, and I guess Milwaukee also with Ethan Small, like the vertical slot. Um, I noticed when I was at the SEC tournament for a day that I watched Arkansas and Vanderbilt and almost all of their pitchers are big dudes in the mid nineties that throw from over the top slots and throw curveballs. So progressive pitching stuff that's in pro baseball right now has. Spread, or I guess already did spread to some of the elite colleges that are sort of on the cutting edge of things. Uh, I don't think there's v- very many more beyond those. Dallas Baptist is probably one of them. A couple other SEC, ACC teams, I think, are considering these things, but like, there's probably less than 10. Whereas when you talk about progressive hitting things, in my article, I wrote that when you ask scouts what college is best at developing hitters, the most common answer was laughter. Uh, cause there's not only is there not one, but most of them are actively going the other direction. Right. Um, so that's why I think pitchers are a little more likely to go to college, all things being equal. But yeah, I, I would say if you were to do like a three or four year study of like this year and the next three against the previous four, I think there would definitely be more high school hitters signing than there were in the past.
3: We looked at the top of the next couple draft classes right after the draft was done. We started like moving guys who weren't going to sign into future years. And as we combed through the rankings that we previously had, like we found we were moving pitchers down. Like Mike Bassett, who we had in the middle of the first round last year, went to Virginia And his stuff was way down all year. Like, he was very hittable. So, so yeah, some of it is just the way pitchers trend in general. But I do agree that there's a problem of incentive in college baseball. The coaches are just not – they're incentivized to do things necessary to win. uh, And sometimes it's at the expense of player dev.
0: Yeah. I wrote about the pitching side of that equation last week at the ringer and also a bit in the book. And in that ringer piece, I talked about a couple of guys at Dallas Baptist and one of them went to the Mets and one of them went to the Mariners. And I mentioned a guy with Iowa who went to the Astros. And so I think that is happening at some D1 schools. And one thing I heard from people was that we're going to start seeing pitchers, at least certain pitchers move quickly through the minors because they'll have made these adjustments even before they get into pro ball and they'll just need a little seasoning and And then they'll just quickly ascend through the minor league levels. And I wonder whether you think that will be the case, because one of the surprises to me when I was working on the book and doing some research is that even though we're seeing this youth movement in baseball, even though player development is really advancing the average debut age in baseball has not changed and the average experience in the minors prior to making a major league debut has not changed and that's you know going back 20 years it's the same today and there could be multiple reasons for that I think I mean there's service time stuff there's the fact that some older players are making changes and are getting to the majors who might not have gotten there before so they're sort of skewing the averages so I just wonder whether you think we will start to see players move more quickly in general and whether we'll see some pitchers really ascend quickly and whether there's anyone who stands out in particular i think you mentioned one eric already but anyone who stands out and whether you think that will be a a league-wide change
3: i guess the what you the two things that you mentioned is as things that could be influencing that are the the two things that came to mind as you asked the question for me like yes the service time stuff is going to suppress how quickly individual players reach the big leagues and as player dev has improved, like it's pr- improved for everyone, not just the young guys right. uh, in recent years. So, yes, I, I think yeah. that that's what has happened recently.
0: But at some point, there won't be old guys who are right. just finding out about this stuff. You'll find out about it in college or when you first get into the minors. And then, you know, you'll make whatever that adjustment is right. earlier. Or find out on Twitter when you're 13. <laughs> right,
3: yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think, that there's, I think that there's a chance that that is what you see Occurring as far, as, especially as far as the pitching is concerned, uh, I think there are going to be huge changes to minor league baseball in the next CBA. I think if, especially if minor league player compensation changes, that the way we look at like the layers of the minor leagues might change so fundamentally that like it's it's completely unrecognizable. Like layers of rookie ball going away and stuff like that, I think is is in play, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to push it's gonna just change the way uh, players are developed and their timelines to the big leagues. But yes, I think that when when Kylie wrote about colleges being bad at player dev, you know, like there are definitely some exceptions to that. I think there's a reason we saw people hired away from colleges this past off season. Right. Uh, it's because some of them were actually had been ahead, and now like teams are throwing money at at the fact that they're behind. So I think yeah, especially from certain programs, yeah, and I think it's worth the the number of programs that are capable of doing it. Are growing, But I think they're all over the place. I think some junior colleges are even good at it. And yes, I think that there's there's a formulaic component that uh, that pitchers are getting to earlier. And yeah, I think we'll start to see players move more quickly, especially if teams if teams aren't so disincentivized from moving them quickly.
0: Yeah, and that'd be good from uh, making the draft more interesting to a wider audience, too, if you can expect to see some of these guys soon. I mean, baseball is never going to be football and basketball in that respect. But I think if you could add some immediacy where, I mean, Joe Sheehan ran a, a thing in his newsletter this past week just about how little major league impact we've seen, even like from going back to the 2016 draft, let alone the last couple. It's just it takes so long for guys to get there and for them to become impact players that just from a you know mass appeal perspective, it would be nice if that timeline could be shortened
3: at least a little bit. I think... Now, maybe evidence that what your, your theory is correct is that the last couple drafts, there's so many players already, like, at double-A. Like, I looked yesterday, and CJ Alexander, who was, like, a mid-round pick in 2018, is, was already at double-A. So, like, they're, teams, are pushing, teams are definitely pushing guys now, I think, challenging them and forcing adjustment, like, via failure is also an important component of player dev. So, yeah, I, it does take a while, and I, I agree that that's probably why. It's hard to get casual fans into it.
1: I know that before the draft, we published our pre draft farm system rankings, and I know that we have yet to complete the exercise fully where we adjust everything for the post draft environment. But are there systems that jump out to either of you in particular as having moved the needle? I mean, it's, you know, it's one day, and obviously, again, we're not doing grades because those are. Dopey. A plus, B minus. Yay. Everyone's a star. They are purple. Um, But are there systems where you feel that there has been some movement, perhaps of a significant variety, with um, the guys that they've taken uh, in this draft? You can tell me no. And then we can just cut this whole bit out.
2: (laughs) Well, Arizona's obviously won because they had a bunch of picks and we think they did pretty well with them. So there's going to be a lot of both depth and sort of higher end players added. Uh, One that came to mind with me was Miami who in the first 10 rounds they basically had our 3rd, 30th, 31st and 94th players and it looks like they'll be able to sign them all and then some like interesting guys later um but i think the way you define if like a a draft class is going to make a farm system better in like the short term you basically have to look at like the top you know 100 players basically how many did they get And the Marlins had three picks in the top 50, and somehow they got, you know, four of the top 100. Um, So you can kind of, you know, move money around and make that stuff happen. Other teams will get, like, one of the top 100 because they just take players we didn't like quite as much. And Miami obviously hasn't had a sterling uh, track record lately when it comes to player personnel stuff. And some of it's been, you know, bad luck or whatever. Um, But it looks like they they did pretty well here with the first-year director.
3: The systems that are going to move the most, like, just the the high-end prospects are the ones that move the systems the most. So Baltimore, I mean— I know it's obvious, but Baltimore. Uh, Adley Rutschman is a top 15 prospect in baseball, and they got a lot of other good players. Kyle Stowers the center fielder from Stanford. Like, if you guys see him swing, it looks like Cody Bellinger, it looks like Jock Peterson. Like, it's that type of swing. This guy is probably going to get to power in pro ball. Uh, Gunnar Henderson, you know, was. Some teams were considering at the back of round one. The Orioles got him at 42. Like, they just got a bunch of good players, which is, you know, and including the best guy. So, yeah, I thought Baltimore did really, really well, both on, on high-end talent and on depth.
0: I don't know how predictable the following year's draft is just after this one was completed. Is it even Stole possible? Still my
1: question.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I guess it's the obvious one to kind of wrap up here, but is it? even possible to look ahead and say this is the strength or the weakness of next year's class or like here's the most interesting person who might be the top pick or is there just so much variance that it's just too soon to say?
2: Uh, in general, I think you can look at it. Uh, because if you look at like the top of this draft, like uh, Adley Rushman was in our top ten, and by the end of the summer, he was number one. Bobby Witt, we knew two years before he was drafted. Andrew Vaughn, we had really early. Riley Green, we had early. C.J. Abrams, we had early. like these were all those three high school players are probably three of the top ten players for you know two years ago for this class. Ladolo had a velo bump. JJ Bulday had a crazy season. Those guys were probably like comp rounders that moved into the top 10, but weren't like names we didn't have. Josh Jung was on Team USA, was in the first round. Shay Lengler was in the first round. So that was... And then Hunter Bishop was probably a third rounder who had never performed and then went nuts this year. So nobody really saw that one coming. But like that was the top 10. Like we basically had all those guys identified and in, you know, the first day, except for probably Bishop, but like he probably shouldn't have been on the first day. So I think when it comes to like the top 10 of to 15 picks... We're actually pretty good at at least saying, hey, here's 70 guys that are all in the mix to go in the top 30 next year. And we're probably going to get, you know, 20 or 25 of the 30. But we're definitely not going to get everybody.
3: Next year's group, as far as the class as a whole, can be evaluated. Like, we just don't know yet that the period of time when we see most of the high school talent is upon us. uh, I'll be, like, doing an event next week. But, like, the top of the draft, the University of Georgia has two guys who are, like, top five talents. Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox. Both like mid to upper 90s fastball uh, college arms. Uh, Spencer Torkelson is next year's Andrew Vaughn, like multi-year uh, elite performance first base type. So those those types presume if, as long as the, the pitching stays healthy, like this is the group at the top of next year's draft. And like the first high score from this was it was the first high score we identified from this group was it Abel? Kylie Mick think
2: I think he yeah I think he was basically two years ago he, they were like oh crap this might be the best high school pitcher in this class All right so it's
3: an Oregon pitcher 66 180 like you can see why when this kid was 15 everyone was already like oh wow look and he was like 88 92 as a sophomore and is now like 93 96 at his best and uh, he's been healthy, and his velocity has just been climbing slowly for like the last several seasons. Like that is the that was the first high score from this group, uh, and he's been tracking well too.
1: From a program perspective, so I know that the answer, the first answer to this is Vanderbilt, but apart from Vanderbilt, what what college programs do you think people should keep an eye on? Obviously, we're a ways away from like there being college baseball again, which is sad. But as we look at going on. I know, but like it's (laughs) it's wrapping up, you know, we don't have a whole lot more time. But next year, uh, there are a couple of programs maybe that people should be especially keen on. And I know the answer is Vanderbilt, but what's the second answer?
2: Second one's probably Florida. I think they would have been close to Vanderbilt if they got Matthew Allen, which now it looks like they won't, but I guess there's there's some chance and I actually um Meg May know this have an article in the Hopper for next week uh, about this sort of topic.
1: Yeah, I knew that.
2: <laughs> yeah, you knew that. Um and then the, I think the rest of them is just probably like the sort of traditional powers which Eric Feel free to jump in, but I feel like in general when you talk to scouts about like what are the best like jobs uh for coaches in college baseball, or what are, like, the most talented, like, pro prospect type teams. It's almost always some mix of, like, LSU, Vanderbilt, Florida, maybe North Carolina, Louisville. You know, it had traditionally been Clemson. Uh, you know, Arizona State, UCLA kind of jump in there, too. But it's like there's a group of eight or ten teams. And if you were to rank all of the colleges based on talent, like, those eight or ten would probably make up four or five of, like, you know, the top half dozen at any given time. And it seems like Flo- like Florida, Vanderbilt, LSU are probably like the perennial, like in the top five every year kind of teams.
3: Yeah, I agree with, you know, Meg implies that uh, that college baseball is like a wonderful February appetizer when you haven't had baseball in four months. So um, everyone should check it out. Like next year, you, you all stream stuff, use your parents' cable subscriptions and get on watch ESPN on your Playstations. You know how this goes. Yeah, those are the programs to watch. Like ASU's losing two guys. They had a lot of ta- like prospect depth this year. They had like six guys who were top uh, 100 type draft talents on 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 the group this year. Um, but two of them are leaving. Uh, UCLA will will they're like the West Coast powerhouse. You know UCLA and Stanford. Stanford typically has had better college players than pro prospects. Uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. They've um, So they have a pitcher, Brandon Beck, for next year who's like uh, plus curveball, plus command, you know, college righty. So they'll be interesting. Timmy Tawa, their third base shortstop, but he's kind of played all over for them. It was like a 2 sports star in high school who's playing baseball for Stanford. Now they're actually going to have a couple kids like that uh, on the team next year. Brock Jones – uh, who I believe was a Boris advisee this, this draft who did not uh, even – I don't even think – he, oh, he was drafted, but he was, was like unsignable since he was a high school sophomore, like going to Stanford since forever. Like Stam- Stanford next year will be pretty interesting too.
2: I would also add Ole Miss and Mississippi State, and I think another important point is that Virginia uh, used to be in this discussion. I feel like now they're like a tier below that, and because they have such a terrible track record with pitchers and have such a regressive approach with hitters, they're actually getting less high-profile recruits, which I don't wish bad things on any program, but like I know multiple agents have asked me, Hey, I just got a kid. He's committed to Virginia. We're going to switch him. Good idea, right? And I go... Yeah, it seems like you've figured out what I would have
3: <laughs> what I would yeah. have answered. I'm
2: glad you asked me the question rather than me proactively telling you this. But sure. there's actually one kid this year that will go be going to school that was originally committed to Virginia and then his agent got him to switch, and now he's going to school. So like they lost a presumably pretty good player uh, because they're perceived as being sort of backward in these ways.
3: And this was the first year in a long time when the highest like the highest ranked pitcher commit to that school was never seen as like a signability question mark. Everybody knew that Co- Jack Kohanowitz is, you know, Philadelphia area high school was going to sign, and I mean, he was a third rounder. I saw that
0: Gerald Schiffman just wrote recently for Baseball Prospectus about pitcher usage in college and looked at pitch counts and recovery times, and he's previously written about that for the Hardball Times. And obviously pitchers are still an injury risk, and pitchers are throwing really hard, and of course there's always the chance that they'll blow out an elbow or something else, but... Has that very egregious type of pitcher handling receded somewhat, just via public shaming and gradual enlightenment? Like, are we seeing fewer, you know, hundred fifty pitch outings where the kid's just like, "I would have pitched all night," and the coach was like,
2: "I want to win and I want to keep my job, and that's all I care about." There's been a little less of like the hundred fifty pitch thing. I think that got drummed out a little bit, and now it's you know, one twenty to one thirty is kind of like the limit. Where there's still some guys like I know Logan. last year and Alec Manoa this year, uh, Stetson in West Virginia, um, both had like, you know, every other start was 120 pitches kind of thing, which when you got a week, a week long of rest, if it's like a physically developed kid that has good command, throws a lot of fastballs, like you could see someone justifying that not being a problem, but you'd rather not see it. I think the real issue is when you see the guy go 120 pitches and then on like one day rest, come out and throw 50 pitches. And that still happens a lot. Like there was, there was one instance this year, I, I may have tweeted about it where um, Missouri had told scouts that this guy's either going to start on saturday or come in relief on sunday and he just did both and there was a guy with louisville recently that just got drafted named nick bennett that i don't remember the details but i believe it was 100 pitches one day off and then came in and threw like 30 pitches um or maybe maybe even more than that i i think i think the coaches pay enough attention that they know that the like local like college newspaper will be like 150 pitches that seems like a lot But they're not going to hold their feet to the fire when it comes to like, oh, well, you use this guy, you know, twice in three days and he threw 100 pitches one of those days just because it's like a little little more esoteric. And also like in the postseason, they're kind of set up to where if they only have, if they have like a short bench of, you know, six pitchers, like they're going to do that. Now what they should do is get more pitchers. Like Florida is a good example of this where they don't abuse pitchers. And I don't know if it's because Kevin O'Sullivan has like a very hard line, I won't do it. But he also has like a staff of 15 pitchers and 12 will be throwing in pro ball one day. So like he doesn't have to abuse them because he has two, too many pitchers he oftentimes will you know bring in freshmen in instances where it doesn't need to be a pitching change because he doesn't want them to transfer because he has too many pitchers so obviously like that would be one way to avoid doing it but i think because these guys especially in the acc and sec are getting paid so much money like there's i think a half dozen guys making over a million dollars now and almost all of them are making well into the like mid six figures like they're going to keep doing this because you can never tie a tj to you overuse this guy that one time and get yelled at and then lose recruits Uh, it'll happen maybe if you're Virginia and you're sort of like um, using guys uh, in a non-ideal way and teaching them things that don't help. And then you have a 10 year track record of guys that making the big leagues like that might affect it. But like if the guy at UNC uh, brings in some lefty for like, you know, too, too often in one, uh, you know, long super regional series, like it's not really going to affect them, but it might make him win and get an extension. So the incentives are still aligned in such a way that that's probably going to keep happening.
3: And we're in the time of year when this stuff is happening, like the college, baseball playoffs are occurring right now this is when that type of thing is most likely to occur i think yeah like it still happens i think the most i saw college arm throw in a single start this year was 120 ryan garcia at ucla and then we're less than a year removed from kit kevin abel throwing like 130 pitches in a college world series game a couple days after he had pitched in a previous game so yeah he blew out spring he blew out this spring yeah so yeah like now is the time especially now that kids have been drafted where who knows like all bets are off what could happen at like these super regionals and in omaha Mm -hmm.
0: yeah one other thing i wanted to ask i touched on this in the book and i've been asked about it in a couple interviews this week but people are curious about whether these changes in technology and development and what teams are targeting will have an effect of excluding more players people from certain economic backgrounds, whether it will be even harder you know, to kind of catch teams' attention and whether there will be more gatekeeping because you already have the expenses associated with travel ball and showcases and perfect game and that whole industry. But if teams are looking at spin efficiency or attack angle and those things, then... Of course, if you've been to a facility or a school that has those sensors and knows how to use them and you get the proper instruction, maybe that makes you more attractive. On the other hand, I guess there are guys who maybe do those things naturally and don't come from a great privileged background, but now their talent is able to be recognized because people are able to quantify those things that they can do. So. What's the effect there? Like, do you have to be wealthier now to get drafted high up or
2: will we see a democratizing effect or the opposite of that? If you ask the average parent, they would say that they believe yes. But if you ask the average scout, they would say, no, no, if your kid like is in one event where it was reasonably easy to see, whether it's one showcase, one tournament, one matchup against a good high school, if he goes to a poor high school or gets to one like MLB event or whatever... That if it's enough for us to put him on a list, we'll go back and see him, and then we'll find out if he's good. And if he's somehow we are not on him right before the draft, he goes to a decent college because he got on our radar, we'll then draft him out of there. Like I I think the The guys that are top five round talents that just aren't seen enough because they're, you know, not getting the encouragement to play. Like, I think that's kind of like a false dichotomy. I don't think that really exists, but I do think some kids think it will be more difficult or parents think it will be more expensive. And so they go do a, an easier or cheaper sport or, you know, go to the sport that has a full scholarship for college. And, you know, I'm not going to say that's the wrong choice but I think if you're good enough to get offered six figures out of high school like you will be found it's not it's not it is very hard to f- hide a player like there was a player this year uh that we thought was hidden that like 10 or 12 teams knew about and about a month later all three teams knew about him. um so it, it does not last that long <laughs> mm-hmm
1: Do you guys think that there's going to be any push? I know that the commissioner has sort of hinted at this to move the timing of the draft because right now we're like in regionals, and also we just saw a kid like get drafted right before he went, he was like in the on deck circle and hit a home run. So, do we think that there's going to be any change in the spacing here so that we could maybe? Uh, make the, the draft a little bit more of an event, understanding that the limitation is always going to be how far away these guys are from the majors and the fact that they're like high school kids no one has seen.
0: Yeah, uh, and to piggyback on that the venue and the location too I know there's been some discussion of maybe moving it to Omaha and you'd have a ton of kids there and an actual live audience as opposed to this freezing airless MLB network studio where you're like
2: piping in crowd noise and no one is actually there
1: you don't think Secaucus is sufficiently fancy for the
2: draft? (laughs) well well, the funny thing there Ben is um, have you known the NCAA to be uh, logical or open minded on any fronts Uh, because they are the problem Uh, Uh there are not many things that MLB be like you know Manfred or whoever the spokesman is says we would like to do this it is a thing that we would like to happen and then the other entity involved says uh, no effing way will this happen <laughs> and that's basically the NCA said is i think i think their stance is we don't want to be associated with these players not playing and making it seem like we're encouraging them to go to pro ball and making it more obvious that we're taking advantage of their um, labor because, you know, that mm. one just got paid $5 million, but he's still got to play a few more games for us. Yeah. And, I, and I think further on the MLB side, they would like to not have players be drafted and then go get abused in a game right afterwards when sure. it's very clear that he's definitely leaving if there was ever a question. And also, if you move it back, then you can have a medical combine, you can have an actual combine, you could have like a, a mini competitive league that MLB runs where it's like, you know, all of the kids we deem top six round um, quality and the Southeast are all going to play each other three times before the draft happens. And then we'll, you know, have MRIs for all of them. And well, have all of these different sort of sports science things done. Like there's all kinds of things that can happen to both make MLB more money as a draft event, to have some cooperation from college baseball, maybe get some college baseball fans that don't like the draft to be interested. And then also to get teams more time, to get better information, to have a higher ROI and make better investments. It seems like a universal good, Um, But when has the NCAA been interested in that?
3: And then as far as the timing of the draft is concerned, I know that yes, I have I think in addition to what the commissioner said that people have been talking about moving the timing for various reasons for a while now and then the, the problem is that you have these short season clubs that fire up in mid June that right. need players. Right. And so that, in connection with what I said earlier about how I think in the next CBA that like the shape of the minor leagues might change, this is like further evidence. I think these things are connected. The idea that the draft should be later and that there might be less rookie ball or, or a second fall league for younger players or some other player dev device like a different Things are timed differently might be in play. So, yeah, I think that that you'd have to see other things change were the timing of the draft to shift. But there are rumors that that stuff is changing anyway.
0: And because it's fun to consider surprises and potential and unexpected outcomes, is there anyone from last year's draft? Who's the person drafted last year who, if you were to redraft all of last year's draftees would move up the most like who's the person who's I don't know not necessarily come out of nowhere but maybe come out of nowhere or just bumped themselves way up because they performed in some way that was not anticipated
3: well Nolan Gorman the the high school third baseman from here in Arizona fell all we had him ranked seventh and he fell to 19 and he's just mashed like as a teenager in full season ball he hit a lot of home runs last summer after the draft at Advanced Rookie Ball and like has continued to play well. We were kind of confused as to how he fell as far as he did. He definitely does not fall that far if you redraft last year's draft right now.
2: And there were a couple other players that I think we were a little higher on than where they went that have all done pretty well. Like Xavier Edwards went 38th. We had him ranked 17th. He'd probably go somewhere around 17th if they redid the draft right now. Kyler Murray would probably go a lot lower if I had to guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Logan, Logan Gilbert went 14th uh, because his velo was down and his velo has come back. So he might scoot up a little bit. Daniel Lynch went 34th. We had him 20-30. Probably go somewhere around 20 he redid that one. Jordan Groshans went 12th. We had him 28th. You're probably wrong on that one. Uh, he might even go higher than 12th now because he's been uh, – he's had a pretty good pro debut. And uh, Tristan Cassis went 26th. And we had him 33rd. And he would probably move up a good bit from there also. I know there were a lot of teams in the 20s that wanted him. Um, so I guess that was some indicator that he was seen to be a very good hitter, which he has done in pro ball. He's in the low A now as a 19-year-old and is really hitting a lot.
3: And I also think Jaron Duran, the, oh, Red yeah. Sox, the Red Sox seventh rounder. Who Kylie and I are kind of we're coming back through the org list, and this guy's hitting. He's they just pushed him to double A. He's played two games at Double A now. He was drafted a calendar a year ago. At high A before his promotion, he was hitting 380, 450, 540. He's a plus plus runner. He con- like someone sent me a TrackMan report. The contact is very strong. So like this is a this is someone who we're like really suddenly very high on now like this might be a top 100 dude by the end of the year if he's performing in double a who was a seventh rounder last year so like as far as raw number of spots goes this is this is a strong candidate as well
2: i'd also throw out brennan davis and cole roeder with the cubs and alec thomas with the d-backs i think of all even if right after the draft or recently have been hitting enough that i think they probably go a little bit higher
0: all right and last thing before we let you go so that you can file and post content on fangraphs.com I wanted to ask this is a, a subject for a whole other podcast the international draft and fortunately you have recently recorded one such podcast and I will link to it you guys talked about it and just some Kassin would say the on. defining podcast on the topic yeah the <laughs> definitive one so some
1: would say that
0: <laughs> at least the people on this podcast right now would say that <laughs> So Kylie, I'm sure you'll be turning your attention to July 2nd and the international market soon. So I just want like a, it can be a three word answer from each of you, I guess. A, should there be an international draft? B, will there be an international draft? And C, what year will that happen if you think it will
3: happen? So I guess, Eric, you can start. (laughs) No, there shouldn't be an international draft. Figure something else out, people. (laughs) Yes, there will be an international draft. 2023 i think it'll take time i think there are kids already in deals two years from now and at some point like mlb is going to have to pull the plug and make it happen even when some of those have probably some of those will have to be broken uh, but i think they'll be sensitive to it for a while like we'll know it's coming before before you can make it a, a bad decision i suppose as like as a scout internationally,
2: mm-hmm. I don't love the idea of a draft for the sort of labor implications, but both the draft and international are both hard capped already, and I can imagine them becoming unhard capped. So the money is already fixed. It's just which mechanism will deliver the player to the team. And I think while it probably should not be a draft in America. I think in Latin America, it does create some incentives that are good in terms of not making deals with 13 year olds because, you know, you have picks, you have to wait for your turn to pick. Um, So I think because of the specific sort of third world markets you're dealing with, a draft may be a better mechanism to deliver the players if you're already set on having um, hard capped uh, numbers like that. It also may increase the amount of sort of games and competitive situations for those players, which actually would make them, you know, in better investment for the teams. And it sounds like as part of an international draft, they would be raising the hard slotted pools. So there would be more money in the market as well. I think there will be an international draft. And I believe it's it's whatever the next CBA is, is my guess, which I believe is 2022 would be the year that's affected because it sounds like MLB wanted to try to do it earlier. Uh, but they have some, uh, we'll say, tough federations to deal with in Mexico and Asia to actually make it a draft for all of the international players. So there's no you know, sort of players scooting through and making loopholes and getting big deals and all that. Uh, and also, like Eric said, like there, there have been multiple international directors that have said, hey, let me know when you hear when the draft's going to be because I'm like thinking about locking up a 2022 right now. And I don't want to like lock up a deal that I have to walk out of.
0: <laughs> what would that be like a 13 year old or something? <laughs> uh,
2: Yeah, Ben, that's what's going on down there. <laughs> yeah, you can act not- like it's not happening, but it's, it's happening. not great. It's
1: not good. <laughs> it's not good at all
0: (laughs) all right well that was many more words than three words but they were good words so thank you so you can all find eric and kylie on the fangraphs audio feed talking about prospects very regularly you can find them writing about prospects and the draft on fangraphs.com you can find them on twitter at kylie mcd and at longenhagen and i guess you guys can go and take your melatonin thank you for coming on I'm going to go hit some caffeine real hard and then shoot a Red Bull commercial. (laughs) All right. Bye, guys. All right. That will do it for today and for this week. One last impassioned plea. Please go buy my book. It's called The MVP Machine How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players The way bestseller lists work Is that they count each week's sales separately Our first week is our best chance To get on bestseller lists So if you buy the book on Friday or Saturday It will count toward that total will give us a better shot I think we do have a shot But every copy counts It would mean a lot to me and Travis And I think you'll like the book If you're in the market for a Father's Day gift It makes for a fine one But it can be any kind of gift For any occasion Get it now and save it to bestow upon someone Later. It's 40% off on Amazon as I speak, so please do pick up a copy and let us know what you think. And if you like it, let the world know what you think. Leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads, that helps us out too. Well, as seemed likely, it appears that the Dallas Keuchel saga has also come to a close. So I guess the off-season is officially over now. The news is just breaking as they prepare to post this, but he's going to the Braves. Looks like it will be a one-year deal for a Measly 13 million, albeit for less than a full season. That makes sense. The Braves could use him. Their rotation's been a little south of so-so this season sean newcomb has been moved to the bullpen which also needed help gossman's been bad fulton nevich has been bad soroka's been good but of course he's been hurt from time to time freed has tailed off a little tehran is eh, okay so i think douse keichel makes a lot of sense for them just as Kimbrel would have i wouldn't describe keichel as a difference maker in most contexts now if he were a difference maker he probably wouldn't have had to wait until june to sign he's not the guy he was in his Cy young season and he doesn't really fit the profile of a modern major league starter kind of a pitch to contact guy relies on his sinker which isn't in vogue these days but with the same caveats that we applied to Kimbrel and his possible rustiness Keiko should be dependable and that's kind of what the Braves need and even if he's not a difference maker in the average rotation he could be a difference maker in the Braves rotation because they need someone like him and they're locked in a very tight race that just got tighter with the absence of Andrew McCutcheon although of course the Phillies will be upgrading too but this is one of the places that Keiko could have gone and actually potentially swung a race so the destination makes sense and now we can close the books on the two outstanding free agents whose whereabouts were hanging over the season to some extent. One follow-up to last week when Meg and I talked about Elton, the Pacific Northwest fantasy player who was aiming to be good again by 2027. We talked about why and how that could be true. Well, it turns out it's not entirely true. We got in touch with Elton, hoping to have him on the show, and he is actually Elton, and he is actually in the Pacific Northwest, and he is a fantasy player, but he is not actually targeting 2027 for his rebuild. Some of his league mates were Trolling him because he is in a competitive down cycle right now. And so they were suggesting that it would take him that long to get good again. That was not nice to Elton. So we're sorry for playing right into the troll's hands, but Elton was a very good sport about it and seems like a very nice guy. And this story had a happy ending because Baseball Prospectus and Craig Goldstein and the folks over there extended a free six month subscription to their Bat Signal service where fantasy players can ask questions of the fantasy writers at the site. So Elton got something out of this experience, which is nice. Elton, we're all pulling for you. And frankly, if your league still exists in 2027 that's pretty much a victory so there's a lot of turnover in fantasy leagues and one more quick thing i wanted to mention i've been enjoying watching trout and otani even more so than usual lately because they've both been raking each of them has hit three homers in the past week otani's looking really good again and i saw a post on mlb.com's cut foresight about how trout and otani are the new bash brothers And i think that's an apt comparison because you do kind of get the same feeling watching them i think it's the purest thing in baseball is watching mike trout celebrate a shohei otani homer Just just bottle that site and douse me in it. They're both so happy for each other. They seem like pals. They're so good at baseball. This is why I took the Angels first in the fun team draft, even though the rest of the Angels aren't that fun at all. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going Jeffrey Schwartz Bill Tom Lasko Isaac Stevenson and Russell Goldstein thanks to all of you you can rate review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectively wild and you can contact us via email at podcastedfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance we hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the MVP machine if you're reading it already, and we will talk to you early next week.